This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and we are doing a continuation deep dive from an original podcast with Sean Hutchinson from SVA, Value Accelerator Methodology. And we're going to go through the financial accelerator component. Good enough. Sean, take your way. <laughs> okay. So the financial accelerator in our in our value accelerator, which consists of, as we talked about in the original podcast, discovery plus seven 90-day sprints. We're talking about a two-year project, is number seven. Why do we put financial accelerator at the end of the process would be, that's a relevant question, right? But we have to know, because we've gone through decision-making and culture, and we've been through risk reduction and productivity and company of the future and sales and marketing at this point, what we're trying to figure out in the financial accelerator is how to fund it all, how to efficiently fund it all at the lowest cost of capital possible. So often the financial strategy in the organization is not aligned with what it is attempting to accomplish, and it doesn't actually contribute ultimately to the operational metrics that matter. So you can have a really good foundation of strategy, a really good operational foundation, a really good productive, efficient process. But if the financing strategy is not line up with it, you keep running into these sort of blockades that ultimately are not going to serve you. Financial acceleration is also, importantly, about creating shareholder value for the owners. So ultimately, when we talk about value creation or value acceleration, what we're really doing is accelerating shareholder value. And we're creating transferability options for the owner that they did not have before. So when you say transferability options, what that means is if we have a buyer out there and the business owner wants to sell. Absolutely. That would be an example of an outside transfer. But also the business really has to be able to transfer also to the inside if that's the way it's going to go. Employee ownership, management ownership, partnership transfer, family. Right. So those are the four inside options. The outside options are sell to a third party, recapitalize the business, which brings in a partner that takes part of the ownership or liquidate. Mm -hmm. Right. Orderly, we hope. But liquidation is a possibility. So when I'm talking about transferable value, I am talking about being able to efficiently transfer the ownership of the business at the highest value possible. Mm -hmm. Right. Most businesses, when we start working with them, are not transferable at all. So if you put a value on the business, it's probably more of a fair market value or an IRS tax value than it is a market, mm -hmm. a true market representation, right? So our position is if nobody would buy your business and particularly Mr. Owner or Mrs. Owner, if you would look at your business from the outside and say, I don't think I would buy that business, then it has zero value. Mm -hmm. Now, the IRS is happy to put a value on it, right? They're happy to do that, especially within your estate. They got their own valuation thing. And even if yours is not transferable, they're going to say that it has value and they're going to tax you on it. So we are always talking about transferability and value in our work because we think that that's the acid test. Will it transfer from one part to the other efficiently at the highest value possible? Kind of litmus test, right? So financial acceleration is a big part of that. There are lots of aspects, I think, of financial acceleration that we could take into account, but really there are two that we want to look at in our financial accelerator that we think matter the most in this particular context. One is determining the true cost of capital for the organization. Cost of capital is critical, 
As you know, part of the reason that public companies can continue to grow and become more and more valuable as they go, part of the reason is because they have access to very low cost capital, which puts a lot of juice in the equity because they get a lot of leverage on the equity, which means that people that are putting the equity in get a higher return. That's the way the math works, right? So private businesses do not have access to low cost capital. Many private businesses really aren't totally bankable. They might be able to get a line of credit. They might be able to get an equipment loan of some sort, like an asset back loan, but it's hard to get the amount of financing that they need to really reach their goals. When you go through this process with the business owner and you've gone through all the steps and you've gone through the financial accelerator portion, mm -hmm. when that owner talks to a lending institution, does that change the behavior of the lending institution? Absolutely. And there are a couple of pieces of that. One, we have a better story to tell. Mm -hmm. That's important. So the relationship between the owner and their bank, honestly, has got to be healthy and the trust in that relationship will be based partly on, in most cases, how trustworthy the owner is to some degree, whether they can financially guarantee the debt. But it's also about the story. Good bankers, and there aren't that many of them, unfortunately. You know, the old style of banking was to actually get to know your customer. The bank gave you time to do it. You had a smaller portfolio of customers. You really went out, you learned their story, and your goal as a banker was to help the owner get from where they were to where they wanted to be. And that was the role of the bank. Now, not so much. Commercial bankers are loaded up with 200 customers. They probably have time to check in for 10 minutes, you know, twice a year. And there's all kinds of other pressures on them to develop new business rather than deal with the existing customers. So the system has changed so much that the relationship between businesses and their bankers or owners and their banker has, I think, deteriorated, which is a problem. Because we always tell our clients that in order to lower the cost of capital, you actually have to get lower cost capital. And that means your banker is your best friend. Because the cost of equity is always higher, including, by the way, the money that the owner because they don't want to use bank debt, maybe, because they're resistant to it. And a lot of owners are. They don't want a whole lot of debt on their balance sheet. But then they turn around and kind of loan themselves their own money on an after-tax basis, in many cases. And then the expectation of the return has got to be, you know, 12, 15%. When I ask owners, what do they want to get back for their money, for their investment, because they're in private business and it is high risk in many cases, they'll tell me 15% seems like a good number. That would be kind of my minimum. Well, every time they put a dollar back into the company, the expectation is that dollar is going to produce 15%, said or otherwise, mm -hmm. right? So then the business has to generate 15% return on that dollar. Plus, it has to generate additional cash to grow. So there really isn't any leverage in that financial strategy, except the owner takes more risk. By putting their own dollar back in, it's been devalued by tax already, tax and inflation. So they're putting it back into the company. And in my view, they would be better off creating a financial environment that the bank can say, we can get behind that story and we're going to do it at three and a half percent. Now the company has significant liquidity. Yeah, the balance sheet's going to look different. Yeah, there's going to be a payment that's going to be made, right? Off the income statement. Yes, those things are going to be there. But from a capital structuring standpoint, from a financial management standpoint, the company that uses debt judiciously and at the right cost is long-term going to be a much better company. 
most private businesses, I think, are under leveraged. I think they're just under leveraged. I don't see very many that are over leveraged. Honestly, I've seen a few in my career that just borrowed way too much money. And maybe the more serious cases were not just borrowed too much money, but borrowed it for the wrong reasons. So now they're in kind of, you know, double trouble. But businesses who use debt for the right reasons, with the right goals in mind, and establish financial systems that can track the value of that investment over time, which we would call, in a very technical term, economic value analysis, which folks that are in our industry or in the financial industry are going to understand right off. But, you know, to put it in simple terms, what are the activities within your company that are creating economic value and which ones don't? That's what it comes down to. And economic value is very simply, did it produce a return in excess of the cost of capital? Got to make the spread. Got to make the spread. Exactly. So I think everybody kind of instinctively understands when you lay out that case, yeah, I need cheaper capital in my company. That begs the question, is the balance sheet structured in a way, both now and proactively into the future, aligned with your strategy? If you say, hey, here we are in point A, and we're going to use capital to move to point B. And this is the strategy that we have, the financial strategy we have to fund that movement. Our balance sheet and our income statement look like this. And by the time we get to B, they're going to look like this. If they don't look like that, we might not be able to fund B to C, right? But we know we've projected that they should end up looking at B like this. And if they do, then we're going to be able to fund B to C. And at C, they're going to look like this. And that'll get us to D, right? So again, much like we were talking about in the company of the future discussion, incremental financial management, that sequencing of we're going from A to B, we have to be able to fund it. It's not going to happen by accident. We need a clear strategy and we need to do it at the lowest cost of capital possible. So that's step one. That takes looking at the balance sheet history, current balance sheet, future balance sheet. Let me just mention that We've worked with a lot of owners and their financial teams that honestly do not look at their balance sheets very much. It's interesting. They spend a lot of time on the income statement, and I can understand that. So profit and loss, man, they're really focused on that, and rightly so. But the balance sheet and the cash flow statement, there is some attention to the cash flow statement, but cash flow analysis sometimes is a little more complex than owners would like. At the end of the day, it's how much did I pay out, how much did I bring in, right? We don't really need the, you know, the sort of gap cash flow statement doesn't always resonate. And I get that. The balance sheet, however, if someone asked me to look at the financial health of a business or to begin to estimate the value of a business or the value potential of a business, the first thing that I will ask for is the balance sheet and I will not ask for the income statement yet. I can tell them right off the bat with a little digging whether the business is healthy enough to actually increase its value in the future. Just by looking at historical balance sheets, And the balance sheet tells a story about the business that I think is incredibly powerful. Unfortunately, I think it's an underutilized tool. A lot of times the financial staff who are in many cases really capable look at the balance sheet a lot, but there are other people in the organization that need to see it and understand it. Mm -hmm. I would argue in financial acceleration for financial transparency. Now, that's a controversial subject, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. I think in general, transparency of any kind in a business actually helps increase its value because it is a 
community activity, right? Everybody in the organization has got to be enrolled in the idea of creating more value. Wherever they fit in that process, in that sequence, they're getting involved in creating more value. Creating more value can be interpreted, I think, very narrowly as putting more money in the pocket of the owner. I actually don't think that's what it is. I think that value acceleration is about creating shareholder value, but it's also about creating whole company opportunity. We like wealth. Wealth creates opportunity. Wealth in a business helps everybody. Creates achieve. opportunity for advancement, creates job security, <laughs> creates benefits, creates... Absolutely. Yes. If we have money, we can do more. Yes. Right? So... We need to be attuned to the financial needs of the organization, aligned it with the strategy. And then I think there needs to be a certain level of financial transparency within the organization. Because I can tell you, I think organizations that are transparent outperform their peers who aren't. And that's because one, the owner and executive team have shown a lot of trust in people to, first of all, engage with the financials, learn to understand them, understand their contribution to them and why it's important. And also just think about how money works in an organization and how important it is, right? The next time you ask for 50000 to go out and do that or you know, whatever you want to do, buy a new piece of equipment, how does that contribute to the long-term economic viability and wealth of the company? If you're not involved in that conversation or invited to that conversation, it's just not going to be on the table for you. Mm -hmm. So the trust factor is one thing. And then I think the knowledge factor and the ability to understand action and how it relates to money is a big advantage that ultimately, I think, converts into a financial advantage, right? Think about public companies. Private owners get really nervous about people actually knowing about their financials, right? You don't have to show everybody everything. We're not saying show every salary or something like that. It doesn't matter. I think they need to know the basics underlying. But if you think about a public company, it's all there. Every employee working Stock in a public company, everything. Everything. They can go read the 10Q, read the K, you know, whatever they want is there. And yet the companies don't fall apart. They don't fall apart. I actually think that they're probably better off with that level of transparency because people have access to the information that they may need in order to do a better job to understand where their place might be. So I advocate for financial transparency as well as operational transparency. The other part of our financial accelerator that I probably in the most proud of, I guess I would say, is what we call feed-starve analysis. I'm going to need to get a little bit visual here. I'll try to explain it in a way, and I know that we'll probably be able to throw a slide up at some point, right, so people can see it. Let me put it this way. If you think about your company as a set of tiles, each tile representing something that you do, something that you sell, division, however you would divide your company up into discrete activities, places, things, right? So let's call those economic activities. Let's say that you put all of those up on the wall and they form a mosaic. Some of those tiles are going to be differently shaped and bigger, smaller, whatever it may be. So it's going to turn out like a mosaic to be just kind of a hodgepodge of stuff, all interrelated. If I go to an owner and I say, all right, I can tell you from experience that if you put 20 tiles up on the wall, five of them are going to be adding economic value and 15 are probably either going to be neutral or taking it away, right? Tell me which are the five that are adding. And unless they have really sophisticated financial analytics in some cases and a deep understanding of 
money traces through an organization in particular ways according to what it does, they are not going to be able to answer that question. And as a shareholder or a leader of an organization, that is a very uncomfortable place to be because you don't know what to feed and you don't know what to start. Well, you'd feel stupid about putting money in a division that doesn't do anything. Yeah, you if would. If you didn't know. If you didn't. That's right. If you knew about it and consciously continued to fund it. That'd be malfeasance. And remember, when we yeah. talk about leadership, the essence of leadership is knowing what not to do mm -hmm. or deciding what not to do. So the same principle applies. Feed, starve. In one of our other sprints earlier, we introduced this in our rapid risk reduction and productivity sprints. It is a framework for deciding what to say no to and what to continue to support or even ramp up support for financially. So visually, this looks like a bar graph. Okay, so up the left-hand side is return on equity. This is a shareholder measure, right? On the bottom side is the total capital base of the company representing all of the things that it does. How much money does it actually need to fund its operations every second, right? What's tied up? So at some point on that bar chart is going to be a dotted line that goes from left to right, and that is going to represent the minimum return on equity that the owner expects to get for their dollar, right? So now imagine that the company does eight things. And so there are eight bars, right, on the bar chart. Let's start on the left with our highest value activity. The ones we like are tall and thin. Why? Because tall means they've exceeded that dotted line, the return on equity. They're very efficient also because they're skinny. That means they're not using very much capital. When less capital is used, it's highly scalable activity. It doesn't require a whole lot of reinvestment, which means it's very efficient. and you can do more of those things with less capital, right? So if you want to expand that, you don't have to put millions and millions of dollars into it. You can just incrementally continue to drive that up. So tall and skinny is great. Out of eight, maybe you have two or three that are, you know, one that exceeds that. You're looking at the chart going, I want more of that, right? Mm -hmm. Number two, maybe still above the dotted line. Great. We like that. Number three, just exceeding or just not quite hitting the, what are we going to do about that, right? Are we going, if it's just below the dotted line, are we going to feed it or are we going to starve it? The challenge to the team would be, I think we're going to feed it, but you guys have to figure out how to make it get above that dotted line by a good way. So now we're going to set it skinnier. and make it skinnier, make it more efficient and drive the return up. I love the fact that it just, it gets real at that point for me because you can't escape the financial results. Whatever they are, they are. They're either bad, good or otherwise, but now you're getting into interesting conversations that benefit the shareholder or shareholders, but also ultimately create wealth within the company. Now, let's talk about the ones that are marginal, right? So let's say four, five, and six are below the dotted line. But in looking at those activities and analyzing them, you see some life in number six. Even though it's underperforming right now, because you've done the strategy work and because you've done the productivity work, you can look at that one and you can say, all right, it's aligned with what we believe is our long-term company of the future, right? And we believe because we've, as we've talked about before, because we have agile strategy, we think we can take number six and turn it into a winner and we can do it within a year. And here's our 90-day agile strategy plan, right? And we've identified success factors, we've identified risks, got our resources lined up, we can take that one and make it a winner. Five, marginal. Maybe it's not underperforming, 
we don't know how to cover the white space between the top of that bar and the dotted line. Quite frankly, it's probably going to take a lot of work, and I don't know that we can really ever push it to where we want to be. So now somebody's got to have a conversation about that. Are we going to starve it or feed it? In those discussions, it should be apparent that it needs to be starved. And what does that mean to the organization? Starved or sold, which is a form of starving. Might as well make money off an underperforming activity. So there are implications to starving. Of course, people may lose their jobs. However, if the organization is attuned to talent and workforce management, you never want to lose talented people. Mm -hmm. You always want to have created a culture, an environment in which you could reposition them relatively easily. So what you want to do is 